my name is Brett, and I'm an elder candidate here at Hagerstown Church, and I know you were already welcomed this morning, but I want to welcome you as well. Uh, it is a joy to see you, and again, it is a joy to hear you sing and make much of Jesus this morning. I also want to recognize another group that is with us, and, and that's our kiddos. You may recognize that there are a few more uh, individuals in the room this morning, and that's because we did not dismiss our kiddos. In fact, uh, we're not having any blue or gray station classes this morning, and so you may hear a bit more rustling in, in, the, in the auditorium. You may hear a little bit more noise, but that's okay. I wanted to let you know, children, that you're welcome here, and we're glad that you're with us this morning. Our sermon this morning is found in Psalm 136, and so you can go ahead and turn there. Psalm 136. Now, before you read it, I want to just give you a couple of uh, bullet point uh, notes as we, we go through this psalm. Now, we don't really know who wrote Psalm 136. We don't have an inscription at the top of this psalm, and so we're left to wonder. We know that it was King David that wrote a majority of the psalms, along with other folks, but we don't know for sure who wrote this psalm. In Jewish tradition, this psalm is known as the Great Hallel, the Great Hallel, which really just means the Great Psalm of Praise, the Great Psalm of Praise. Now, that word Hallel, you, you recognize, is actually part of the word Hallelujah, Hallelujah, praise to Yahweh. One last little bit of information. This psalm is unique in the Psalter. So the Psalter is all 150 psalms together, and it's unique, and it's really one of a kind because it's what's known as a antiphonal psalm, antiphonal psalm, which means that it was really designed for two groups of people to sing back and forth. Historians believe that perhaps the Levites or the priests would lead the congregation of Israel in this psalm, and then the people would respond, in this case, with the same exclamation each time. Now, we're not going to attempt to sing this psalm this morning, although, where's Jeremy? Is Jeremy in here right now? Yep. Uh, this could be a cool project for you uh, to uh, work uh, like you did with Psalm 120, uh, to uh, maybe put Psalm 136 to words. But we are going to read it, uh, as we do every Sunday, and ask God to bless the reading of it. We're going to do it a little differently, though, this morning. Like I said, this song is antiphonal. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the very first part of every verse, and then I'm going to ask you, the congregation, to respond with the second half. And you'll notice it's the same exact response every single time. Kids, this is also a really good opportunity for you to join in with your parents and with your family. You may not be able to read uh, very well yet as you are continuing to grow, but as I said, it's the same words every single time, so you should be able to catch on pretty quickly as we, we work through this psalm. If you haven't turned there yet, it's on page 616 in the black hardback Bible in front of you, and you also see it on the screens behind me. These are God's words. Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. To him who alone does great wonders. 
I love that. To him who by understanding made the heavens. To him who spread out the earth above the waters. To him who made the great lights. The sun to rule over the day. The moon and the stars to rule over the night. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. And brought Israel out from among them. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm. To him who divided the Red Sea in two. And made Israel pass through the midst of it. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. To him who led his people through the wilderness. To him who struck down great kings. Steadfast love endures forever. And killed mighty kings. Steadfast love endures forever. Sion, king of the Amorites. Love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan. And gave their land as a heritage. Fast love endures forever. A heritage to Israel, his servant. It is he who remembered us in our low estate. And rescued us from our foes. He who gives food to all flesh. Give thanks to the God of heaven. Amen. His steadfast love endures forever. Would you pray with me? Father, we, we thank you for this wonderful truth that your steadfast love endures forever. And we thank you for your word. And we recognize that it is inspired and infallible and authoritative and sufficient for our lives. And so we ask that you would shape and fashion us according to it this morning. And Father, we, we believe that you will answer this prayer in the affirmative because we know that you desire to make us to look more like your son. And so we ask these things in great faith, believing them to be true. Amen. Now, as we jump into this psalm, I want to spend a few moments focusing on the theme of the psalm, which, of course, is reiterated 26 times, and you just spoke the theme 26 times, and that is, again, God's steadfast love endures forever. Now, this phrase, steadfast love, it comes from a Hebrew word, which is really notoriously hard to translate. It's the Hebrew word chesed. Does everyone say chesed? You'll notice you kind of you clear your throat a little bit. Chesed, 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 right? Now, we're, 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 we're Americans, so chesed will suffice. Now, this word is really hard to translate because it really encompasses a lot of different themes and concepts. So, and so there's not really just one word that's going to uh, perfectly translate this Hebrew word. 
And you can really demonstrate this by looking at a lot of different of the modern translations that you may have in front of you. Uh, for example, the King James translates this word as mercy. The NIV translates it as love. The uh, NASB, it kind of recognizes the difficulty of this word. And so they came up with a new word. It's a very Bible word, loving kindness, right? Uh, and also, interestingly, the same uh, NAS in 2020, they had a new edition, and they just went with faithfulness. Uh, the New Living Translation, the CSB, which I know some of you read, uh, goes with faithful love. And the ESV, which we use most regularly here at Hager Sound Church, uses an adjective to modify love and says that the love is steadfast. And so you can see the difficulty here. Faithful Bible translations and translators are, are not necessarily having a consensus on exactly how to translate this word perfectly. But just because we don't have a one-for-one -one word translation of this word doesn't mean we can't have a definition using lots of words to explain this one word. So there's a couple of definitions that I have found helpful in my sermon prep to understand this word chesed. One way you can look at it is that it's the covenant commitment and loyal, faithful love that originates in God and is resolutely expressed to his people. And so it's a faithful, loyal love characterized by his covenant with his people. Another way that you can describe this word is that it's a kind of love that someone demonstrates when they're keeping a promise. So there's that idea of covenant again. And when the desire to be loyal to that promise motivates them to go above and beyond be, and being super generous to the person receiving the hesed more than they would even expect. And so that kind of gives you an idea of this, this Hebrew word. And so in God's dealings with his people, his disposition towards his people, the Bible characterizes that as hesed. Hesed. And we first really see the mention of this word in Genesis 24, when Abraham's servant is journeying really all the way back to Mesopotamia to look for a suitable wife for Abraham's son, Isaac. And he prays to God, the servant does, and, and asks God to show Hesed, steadfast love, to his master, Abraham, by giving his son a wife. We also see in Genesis 32... The grandson of Abraham, Jacob. Jacob's been through a lot of, of, of uh, things that he's probably caused, a lot of problems that he has, has done in his young age, um, selling his birthright for some soup. We all know the story. But in his later life, he recognizes that he's really been unworthy of all of the chesed, the steadfast love that, that God has shown him. And we see him praying to God in Genesis 32, just that. Also in Genesis 39, the text says that it's really because of God's steadfast love that, that Joseph found favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. It was because of God's steadfast love that Joseph was in the position that he was and started to be elevated in the, uh, the ranks of, of Egypt. You may be familiar with really probably the most famous example of this word used in the scriptures, and it's in Exodus 34, and it's actually used of God to describe himself. It's his own declaration of who he is and what he is like. And he's, he said on Mount Sinai to Moses, he said, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. 
And so we see throughout the scriptures, not just in our psalm this morning, but throughout the Old Testament, that God is a God of hesed. He's a God of, of steadfast love, of, of loyal love. Now, as we've kind of laid the foundation for the psalm, let's go ahead and jump in. So Psalm 136 opens with an invitation. And you really see that in verses 1 through 3, an invitation. It's an invitation to really do a simple thing, and that is to give thanks. To give thanks, to, to offer up a praise of thanksgiving to God. The text says that he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. And that we're also to give thanks to God because he's the God of gods and the Lord of lords. You know, we think of the Apostle Paul in, in his letters to the Corinthians. He talks about that there are many so-called gods and many so-called lords in our world, but there is only one true God and to whom we are to give thanks. And so this invitation at the beginning of our psalm is going really to continue throughout the psalm. You're not going to see the phrase give thanks really until the very end in verse 26, but it's implicit really in every single verse. We are to give thanks for this thing that God has done because his steadfast love endures forever. One last thing I want to point out in this, this opening, this invitation and this is really something that I want to do in the interest of, of biblical literacy. And I want you to look at the, the first verse and the word that you see in all caps there. You'll see LORD in all caps, L-O-R-D in all caps. Now that word LORD is different than the word LORD that we see in verse 3. Do you see, do you see the difference? One's in all caps and one is in you know, it's just capitalized, and the rest is lowercase. Now, when you see L-O-R-D in all caps, that is actually a stand-in word that really is tipping off the reader that God's personal and relational name is being used, his personal relational name. Just like you and me, God has a personal name that is unique to him. Now, we're not specifically sure perfectly how to trans to how to pronounce it, rather, um, but you may have heard it s said as Yahweh or Yahweh. Now, we don't have a lot of time to get into why it shows up as L-O-R-D in all caps in our, in our modern English Bibles. There's a long history to that. But be aware that when you are reading through the Old Testament and you see that in all caps, or even if you see G-O-D, God, in all caps, that the Bible is showing you that that's actually talking about God's personal name, Yahweh. It shows up over 7,000 times in, in the Old Testament. It's the most used word in the entire, entire Bible. With that in mind, you could read verse 1, give thanks to Yahweh, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. All right, let's continue to go through this section here. We, we come to really our first main section, and it's found in verses 4 through 9. And I have titled this section, The God Who Creates. There will be some notes and some outlines on the screens behind me. Verses 4 through 9 is praising God and giving thanks to the God who creates. Now, kids, now, even though you are not in your classes today and you're not learning about uh, the next attribute of God. By the way, next week is God is all powerful. But even though you're not learning that this week, anytime we open the Bible, we see God's attributes on display. 
And so right here, we see that God is the creator, right? We learned a few weeks ago that God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. God is the God who creates. And so we see the psalmist calling on God's people to give thanks to him who alone does great wonders in verse 4. To him who by understanding made the heavens, who on the third day of creation caused dry land to appear, literally spread the earth above the waters, who made the great lights, the sun and the moon and the stars, all these great wonders God did. Now, he doesn't just want us, church, to know these things to be true. He doesn't want us to just just know that he does great wonders and that he, by understanding, made the heavens and, uh, and so on. He actually wants us to know something specifically and understand something. He wants us to know the connection between the things that he does and his relationship with his people. Let me say it again. He wants us in this section to understand the connection between what he does and his relationship with his people. He did all these things, right? Wonders, made the heavens, spread out the earth above the waters, made the great lights for his steadfast love endures forever. There's the reason. For his steadfast love endures forever. You know, the same sun that Adam and Eve saw on the very first day that they opened their eyes, the very same sun is the same ball of hot gas that we see today. The exact same one. And so the sun is remaining steadfast in its warmth and in its light and its, even its life-giving uh, uh, light because God remains steadfast in his love for his people. You, you may think of it in another way. You know, when, when God appeared to Abraham and he said that, Abraham, your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars of heaven. And he looks up and he sees literally Lots of stars, uh, innumerable. No one could possibly count them. And he says his descendants will be as numerous as those. Those same stars are the same ones that we look up at today. It's evidence of God's steadfast love for his people. You know, God is not a creator who creates impersonally or distantly. You may uh, maybe heard of the watchmaker theory where, where God kind of created everything and then he kind of took a step back. He kind of wound the watch a little bit and, and then he, creation's kind of just doing its thing. That's not the God of the scriptures. That's not, that's not the God of the Bible. The Bible is very clear that, that, that God is a creator from which hesed, steadfast love, flows out of. It flows out of him. His creation is motivated by love. Why did he make us? He didn't make us because he needed us. He made us because he desired relationship. He desired to show steadfast love, even though he had no need of such a thing as a relationship. As we move on, we move into our second section this morning. I'm calling this the God who delivers, and we're going to look at verses 10 through 16. In this section, we, we zoom in from the cosmic, you know, the literal retelling of Genesis, Genesis 1. We zoom in from that, and we look at God's direct dealings with his people. 
direct dealings with his people, the Israelites. And we see the God who delivers. And of course, if you, if you know your Bible a bit, you know that, that the psalmist in this section is really remembering the Israelites' time spent in Egypt as slaves and, and their cry out to God, literally their groanings, the scriptures say, calling out to God to deliver them. And we know that God is motivated by steadfast love to respond to that cry, to hear his people's groanings, and to begin to deliver them from Pharaoh and Egypt. And so in verse 10 here in Psalm 136, we pick up with the final plague, the the death of all the firstborn in Egypt, which finally compelled Pharaoh, sort of, to release God's people from bondage. Now, as we continue reading, we, we come on to, to verse uh, 11 and, and 12, and we see this idea that God, in his great strength, his strong hand, and his outstretched arm, that is how he brought Israel out of Egypt. And we don't really know the, the inspiration behind these words from a human perspective. The psalmist is obviously remembering the people and the history of his people, but these words, uh, strong hand, outstretched arm, are referenced many times long before this psalm is written. Moses, right outside the promised land, he gives a sermon, basically, to his people, recounting everything that has happened, from God bringing out the Israelites to him giving the law at Mount Sinai, providing a, a tabernacle. He's recounting all of this. And he tells the people, Deuteronomy 4, if you want to look at it, he asks basically a rhetorical question. Has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation? By trials, by signs, by wonders, by war? Here's our phrase, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Israel before your eyes. To you it was shown that you might know that Yahweh, is God. There is no other beside him. With a mighty hand, a strong hand, and an outstretched arm. As we keep going this morning, we look at verses 13 through 15. Really, this is the apex of God's deliverance of his people. There's a reason it's in the literal middle of this psalm. Verses 13 through 15, the apex of deliverance. And of course, it's the parting of the Red Sea and the, the drowning of Pharaoh and his cavalry, cavalry. When the Israelites make it to the other side and they sit down on the sand, what do they see? They see their enemy washed up on the shore dead. God has delivered them from their great enemy. He has overthrown their enemy it's fascinating to me that the Hebrew word for overthrow there is actually shook off. He shook off his enemy, just like we would shake off a fly off our, off our arm. That's what God is actually describing what he has done as. Pharaoh was as a fly to him, and he flicked him off. You know, the Israelites, they look at the waters and they're, they're calm, like nothing really has ever happened. The Red Sea is just as it was before they crossed it. And their, their hearts begin to rise up inside of them and they can't help but worship and sing 
to what God has done and accomplished for them. And Moses leads them in song. And what do they sing? What do they sing in Exodus 15? You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You've led in your hesed the people whom you have redeemed. Verse 16, as we keep going, as you follow along, verse 16 recalls the wilderness wanderings of the Israelites as they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And why did they wander? Well, they wandered because they had unbelief in God's steadfast love, unbelief in his promises. And so in judgment, they are, uh, they are resorted to wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, from their perspective, they were wandering, and they were learning a lot about the wilderness, all these new routes they didn't even know existed, all these people groups that they had only heard about. But even from their perspective, they were wandering. God was not wandering with his plan. In fact, he was leading them, right? Verse 16, he was leading his people through the wilderness. He was going to finish the the deliverance that he started in Egypt. He was going to bring them to the promised land. You You may be asking the question, how many times was Israel unfaithful to God? How many times? I mean, you could, you could work your way through the Torah and work through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and really maybe pinpoint the exact amount of times that they showed unbelief. But the reality of it is, is that even one time would have warranted God to reject them. Even one time. And yet, he continues to lead them in the wilderness I think that Spurgeon's words are really beautiful here. He comments on, on this part of Israel's history. And he says that their conduct in the wilderness, the Israelites, it tested God's mercy most severely. But it bore the strain. His mercy bore it. It bore the strain. Many a time he forgave them, and though he smote them for their transgressions, Yet he waited to be gracious and speedily turned to them in compassion. Their faithfulness soon failed, but his did not. The fiery, cloudy pillar which never ceased to lead the van was the visible proof of his immutable love. The visible proof of his steadfast love. Israel was unfaithful in the wilderness, but God was faithful. He led them as he promised that he would. As we move on, we come to a less known part of the story of of Israel, and we see the God who protects and provides. The God who protects and provides. Verses 17 through, through 22. Now, I find this section rather fascinating. It doesn't have the fame and the familiarity of our previous section, or we don't have plagues and Pharaoh and and 400 years of slavery coming to an end. Um, I don't think that this story is going to be in most kids' curriculums. Um, I, I rest assured, I know that the Red Sea is going to be in almost every kid's curriculum. But verses 17 through 22, uh, maybe not so much. But here it is, right here in Psalm 136. And so while it doesn't have the, the, the famous Red Sea account, it's no less a an evidence to the steadfast love of God. 
Now, because it is a little less known, um, let me set the context a little bit. So the Israelites have, have made it really through the wilderness. God has done exactly what he said he would do. He's led them through the wilderness. They're near the end of their journey. The promised land is within their grasp. And really, they only have to get through one little area of land. It's called the Transjordan area. It's right next to the Jordan River. And so if they just can get through that piece of land, cross over the river, boom, they're there. They're in Canaan. They're in the promised land. God's promises have, have come true. And so they're really close. They've wandered for 40 years. And so they come up onto the border of this little land called Transjordan. And Moses is a good leader. So what does he do? He sends a letter, basically, to the king of this land. And he asks for a really innocuous and peaceful thing. Hey, we have a lot of people. We're just passing through. We'd love to take your highway. We just need to get to the Jordan River. We, have, we don't want to cause any trouble. We're just passing through, just asking your permission. Very peaceful request. And yet we read in the scriptures, you can look at the account in Numbers 21, I believe. But the king, King Sion, he actually doesn't only refuse passage. He goes out into the wilderness to make war against the Israelites, seemingly unprovoked. He goes out, makes war against them. Now, from a human perspective, things are not looking good right now. Israel is really tired. They've been wandering again in the wilderness for 40 years. The previous generation has all but died off as God promised they would. Moses is getting really old. People are wondering how in the world he's still leading this people. The, the people who are left are probably militarily inexperienced. They haven't seen a lot of battle. And so all these things are stacked against the Israelites as King Sion comes out to meet them. But they have one thing that King Sion does not have. And it's the God of gods and the Lord of lords. King Sion does not have the steadfast love of God on his side. The Israelites do. And in only a way the scriptures can tell it, there's no explanation of the battle. It just says... He came out to meet them, and the Israelites defeated them, and they took his land. That's all, all it says. It was, it was, that's all that needs to be said, right? In a very similar account, we see in verse 20, there's another king, and his name is Og. Don't name your child Og, please. Don't do that. Now, this guy, he's arguably a stronger foe than Sion. The, the scriptures say that he's a descendant of giants. He's a descendant of the Rephaim. And so he thinks, hey, I've learned from Sion's mistakes. He didn't have good battle strategy. I'm going to go out, and I'm going to attack these weak Israelites. They've, yes, they, were, they defeated Sion, but they're probably tired. They took some losses. All right, I've got this. And what does God promise Moses? He says, hey, just as I defeated King Sion, I'm going to defeat King Og. I'm going to take his land. I'm going to give it to you. And that's exactly what happened. Because his steadfast love endures forever. You know, there was once two mighty kings standing between the Israelites and the promised land. Right at the end of their journey, when there was once two kings, there remains none. No kings there to, to, to oppose the Israelites. And so God's steadfast love has really proven stronger than these mighty kings. It's proven stronger than giants even. 
I can't help but think of when the Israelites looked over into the promised land and they sent some spies and they recognized, oh, we can't do this. These, these guys are big. They're giants. We, there's no way we can defeat them. They, in unbelief, did not believe that God could do what he promised. And yet here he is giving a foretaste of that very thing, defeating King Og, the giant. It's been said that God determines the time and place of our dwelling. And in God's steadfast love, he takes the land out of these two kings from under their grasp and gives it to his people. Because he is sovereign and he determines the time and place of our dwelling. And, it's a, and again, it's a foretaste of what's to come across the Jordan. As God's people will go in and inherit the land that God has apportioned to them. A heritage to Israel, his servant. As we move into our final section this morning, we come to the God who remembers and rescues the God who remembers and rescues, verses 23 to 26. Here we, we zoom out from specific historical uh, narrative and, and commentary on these events, and we really just reflect more generally. And maybe the psalmist is asking, hey, what exactly has God, God done through all this? How would you describe the actions of God? And he says that God is a God who remembers and a God who rescues. A God who remembers and a God who rescues. You may remember yourself when the Israelites, they cry out to God again and they ask for deliverance in Egypt. The scriptures say that they were groaning because of their slavery and they were crying out for help and their cry for slavery came up to God and the scriptures say that God heard their groaning and he did what? He remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This last section is beautiful. The scriptures say that God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Saw the people of Israel and God knew. God is a God who remembers. The people of God are, are always on the mind of God. It's not as if he forgot the people of Israel. He is the all-knowing God. But yet, when the scriptures say that God remembers the Israelites, remembers his people, it means that he is specifically about to have an action. He's about to either show mercy or he's about to do some act of deliverance. Rescue always comes with remembrance. And so we see in this whole psalm that God is a God who rescues Israel from slavery, from Pharaoh, from the wilderness, from Sion and Og. And, and these are just the instances in Psalm 136. If you read through the entire Old Testament account, you'll, you're going to find time and time again that God delivers the Israelites from their foes, no matter how many are surrounding them. Read, read the story of David, how many times he was delivered from his enemies, enemies without and enemies within, even. God is a God who remembers his steadfast love and then rescues his people. As we close out this psalm and kind of working our way through it, uh, we see the, the praise to God, the giving thanks to God for his sustaining of Israel in the wilderness through manna, and even recognizing God's providential care and goodness to all creation, right? He who gives food to all flesh for his steadfast love endures forever. 
And then we return right back to where we started. Verse 26, give thanks to the God of heaven for his steadfast love endures forever. This is the overview of of this psalm. And as we've considered it this morning, we've traced God's steadfast love through the literal acts of creation, the beginning of creation, to the deliverance of Israel and the journey to the promised land. And we don't really know when this psalm was written, just like we don't know who wrote it, and those are kind of connected, connected as to why we don't know, right? But we do know that God's people sung this song probably for centuries after these events happened, as they remembered how God had shown his steadfast love to his people and how he remembered and and rescued them. As we move out of the outline and in an attempt to to land our plane this morning, I want you to, to know one thing, that as we've read of the singing of the Israelites of God's steadfast love, that this song is not just for Israel. It's not just for Israel. If you're a Christian this morning, this song is your song too. If you're a Christian, this song is yours. There's no appearance of the word hesed in the New Testament, and that's because hesed is a Hebrew word, and the New Testament was written in Greek. But when the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek, we call it the Septuagint, when it was translated into Greek, more often than not, the Greek translators took that word hesed and they translated it into the Greek word for mercy, elios. And when you actually see that as a reality, you start to see a beautiful picture that's beginning to develop in the New Testament because God's steadfast love is not just ending with the Israelites. If it, in fact, endures forever, then it's going to extend into the New Testament. We think of Mary when she is told that she's going to bear the Savior of the world. You know, Mary knows what that means. She, you could say she knew her Bible. I could almost say that she knew Psalm 136. She probably sung it with her her family members in Antiphony or maybe even sung it at synagogue, she knew the content of Psalm 136. And when she's told that she'll bear the Savior of the world, she knows that that God's steadfast love has broken through in a new way. And just like the Israelites, when they stood on the Red Sea shore and they sung to God, Mary sings a song also. Hear the words of Mary here. She says, or sings rather, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who has mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy, is Elias, is for those who fear him from generation to generation, He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things. The rich he sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, in remembrance of his alias, 
his steadfast love, his chesed, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Does that not sound like Psalm 136? Again, Mary knows her Bible, and she's singing a, song, a, a psalm, a song, in the, in the likeness of Psalm 136. Psalm 136 is our song, too. When Paul, who's a Hebrew of Hebrews, says that the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior has appeared, and he goes on to say that we're saved not because of our own righteousness, but because of God's mercy. There's that word again. But because of his mercy, what is, what is Paul really getting across there? Loving kindness appears. The goodness of God appears. The mercy of God appears. What is he actually trying to say? God's steadfast love has broken through in a far greater way than the Israelites could have ever anticipated. His steadfast love has broken through and brought salvation for all who would receive it. His goodness, his loving kindness, his mercy. They're all byproducts of, of his steadfast love, his covenant commitment to his people. And so if you're a Christian this morning, Psalm 136, again, is your song too. And if you're a Christian, would I submit to you that you have an even greater version of it to sing, an even better version of Psalm 136. Let me invite you to, to close your eyes and hear Psalm 136 from the perspective of a Christian. And I pray that this is your perspective. Give thanks to the Lord for the good news of the gospel, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone works a greater wonder in raising dead men and women to life, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding will make a new heaven and a new earth, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who will dissolve the sun and the moon and he himself be our light. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who became our Passover lamb and protected us from the great plague of death and judgment. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who brought us out of our bondage to sin. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who worked salvation and shook off the enemy of our souls at the same time. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who daily leads us through the wilderness of life. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who has prepared a place for us where kings, Revelation says, will bring their glory into it rather than war. For his steadfast love endures forever. It is Christ who has remembered us in our low estate, for his steadfast love endures forever and has rescued us from all our foes, even death itself, for his steadfast love endures forever. He who gave his own body as food for our souls, for his steadfast love endures forever. You can open your eyes. This is our song. 
This is Psalm 136 fulfilled in Christ. And it is our song. You know, we said in our call to worship that, that we are, you know, we're singing a new song. That this is our new song. That Christ has brought redemption. That Christ has shown steadfast love. That the covenant that was made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob has been remembered. And now we are part of that covenant as God's people, as Christians. And so, Christian, God's steadfast love endures forever. And those who are in Christ, those who are with God, will sing of his steadfast love forever. Let's pray. Father, we believe this to be true. We thank you that in your steadfast love, you appeared as the Savior of the world, that you sent your Son. Lord, we thank you that you remembered us in our low estate and that you have rescued us from all our foes. Lord, we ask that the, that the psalm that we have read this morning, that you would bless it in our hearing, that we would rejoice knowing that we have an even greater song to sing, an even better version of this psalm to declare. Father, would you cause us to worship would you cause us to respond and worship even now as we consider the great things that you have done, the mighty wonders that you have worked? We love you and we praise you. And we pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.